It was the most tense and difficult week that we ever spent with Jesus. It started off easy enough. We went from Lazarus's house in Bethany on the first day of the week to go to Jerusalem. There we were going to begin the whole preparation of the Passover. It was crowded. There were so many people coming in. It was one of those great and joyous events. There's no place like Jerusalem when it comes to the week of the Passover. And as we gathered and went over hill and around the corners and up over, as we got to the hill just to crest it, before we got to where we could see the holy city, Jesus stopped us and asked two of us that we would go into another town. And there we would find a colt and we were to bring it to him. Seemed like an unusual request. We walked everywhere. None of us owned a horse or a donkey or a colt of any kind. We didn't know what he wanted it for, but it was Jesus' request, and so we complied, and off we went. And sure enough, there in this little village, we found the colt tied up, had never been written. We took the colt, brought him back to Jesus so that we might fulfill his request. But when we got back, there was Jesus, but the crowd was now both large and in excitement. There was a frenzy about them. Apparently, some of those who had been affected by his ministry when we were in Galilee had come by and they had recognized him and word had spread and an excitement had spread that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And so when we got back there, we said, here's the colt, Lord. What do you want to do with it? And without saying a thing, Jesus simply got up on the colt to ride it. And as soon as he did, the crowd went into ecstasy. They started yelling and screaming and crying out. They praised God. They began climbing the palm trees and grabbing branches and throwing it in front of Jesus as he went step by step on the cold toward toward Jerusalem. They took off their cloaks and threw it down on the ground in front of him. They began to sing. They began to praise God. They began to shout. It was a parade. It was exciting. It was joyous. Everybody got caught up in it. We started dancing. We started celebrating. Jerusalem had not seen this kind of scene since David had come back as a conqueror. The whole town was a buzz. We all came in. Here comes Jesus riding on the colt. It was exciting. It was moving. We got into where the temple area was, and Jesus looked around and said, it's too late in the day. And with that, he turned, and back to Bethany we went. There were some of us that were very relieved that Jesus did nothing that day. We were relieved because we were afraid, afraid of the scene, afraid of what might take place. Not everybody in Jerusalem was a friend of Jesus. Not everybody in Jerusalem was a friend of ours. So some of us were just grateful that we got out of Jerusalem alive that day. Others of us were greatly frustrated because we thought this was the moment. Finally, after three years of following him, finally we thought this culmination, the revolution was about to begin. And Jesus, at the perfect moment, at the perfect time, when he could have done so much, when he could have brought this whole thing into being, simply did nothing. He simply walked away. When was it going to start? When was this revolution against the Romans going to begin? When were we finally going to elevate Jerusalem to the place in the world that God had intended for it to be? So some of us walked back to Bethany with great frustration that a chance, an opportunity had been missed. The next day we got up again to travel back from Bethany back to Jerusalem. 
We should have known even as we walked in that it would not be a good day, and it certainly wasn't a good day. Jesus apparently was hungry on the way. He went over to grab a fig off of a a fig tree, and it had no figs on it, and he cursed the tree. He cursed the tree. He cursed the tree. Jesus usually didn't do that. He didn't curse trees. Seemed like he was on edge from the beginning of the day. We got into the temple, again, hustling and bustling. So many people around, so much activity. Jesus seemed oblivious to the joyousness of the event. You could see the frustration and the anger, the confusion growing on his face. Finally, he did something we had never seen him do. He got angry. He got angry, and the, angry was, the anger was something that you could feel. And when he walked over to where the money changers were, he began tossing and flipping tables. People scattered. Everything came to a halt. Everybody looked at this madman, this Jesus, throwing one table after another over, money going everywhere, people running everywhere. Finally, as in stunned silence, we looked at him. Jesus, with an anger in his voice that was uncharacteristic of him, simply said, you have made my house into a den of thieves. This is to be a house of prayer. And no one responded, for no one knew what to say. Jesus just stood there in silence and in anger and walked away. Sheepishly, we backed out of the crowd and followed him back to Bethany. Maybe going to Jerusalem was not a good idea. The next day, as we're walking toward Jerusalem, all of us tense and apprehensive, we walked by the fig tree, and it was dead dead. It was an ominous sign. None of us wanted to go into Jerusalem that day. Nobody except Jesus. He was determined. And when we got there, who was lying in wait for us? (laughs) Uh, That's right, the Pharisees. The Pharisees there, they were going to pin Jesus down. They were going to nail his theology and make sure that everybody in the crowd knew that this was not a man to be trusted. But here's the problem when you get into a verbal argument with Jesus. You lose. I've never seen anyone who had a command of language and understanding and and the Bible and theology and truth as Jesus does. He teaches like somebody who has an authority that I have never seen anyone else possess. And so the Pharisees went back and forth with him on this and on that. He won every argument. He put them all in their place. Finally, it became the Sadducees' time to come up. They always, I don't like these men. These Sadducees, they always want to talk about the resurrection, about the fact that they don't believe in it, the fact that, they is, they were, that we live in a hopeless situation with no hope of the future. They started in with Jesus about marriage and some story and scenario that they would sure would catch him, but they didn't because you can never put Jesus in a corner like that. And at the end of the argument, Jesus won, and the Sadducees walked away, and they were, of course, sad. You see?
Finally, the next day when we went back in, all of us were questioning Jesus. For it was the time for the Passover celebration, and we didn't know where we would gather. We knew we would gather together. Jesus had promised us that. But none of us had any family or relatives there in Jerusalem. There's no one's home that we could go to. We were all confused and somewhat concerned because we've celebrated the Passover with family and friends every year of our lives. This is a tried and true ritual for us, and we looked forward to it. In spite of the tenseness of the week and all the things that had gone along, this was the time we were really looking forward to. And when we went into Jerusalem, Jesus gave orders again to a couple of us to go into the center square, and there we would find a man with a large water jar, and we were to follow him to find out if the room, the the guest room, was ready for us. And sure enough, we went into the town and went into the square, and there was the man with the jar. And when we asked him if the guest room was ready for the master, he said it was, and he led us there, and there we made preparations. I personally was very grateful to find that it was an upper room because that night I felt much better about being in a room that had doors and windows that could be closed, that could be locked, for none of us felt secure in this city. Plus, we just wanted a night without the crowds, without the people clamoring and pushing in. We wanted just a night with us and Jesus, especially this night of all nights. And so we gathered together, just the 13 of us in that room. And it was a great, great Passover celebration. I know that for me, I I enjoy the ritual. It's the same questions. It's the same answers. It's the same food. It's the same, well, it's the same everything. But I, I, I find great comfort in that as we go through the story of the Exodus and what God has done for us in the past and in the hope of what God will do for us in the future. And it was a great night, and it was a great meal, until the end. There we were, all laying around this this dirty table. You know what tables get like at the end of a meal. It's messy. It's been used. The little bits of food are left over and sitting on plates. The cups have been drank. The wine has been poured. The napkins have been used. And suddenly Jesus Jesus talked about betrayal. Seemingly out of the blue, he looked at us and he said, one of you will betray me. One of you. He said it with such seriousness that the room got deathly still and quiet. All of us stopped. Two things went through my mind, and I believe those same two things went through all of my fellow disciples' mind at the same time. The first was that it couldn't be somebody at this table. We'd seen too much. We'd experienced too much with him. We'd heard his words. We'd watched him heal the blind to heal the lame. We'd seen him. We were staying at Lazarus' house. Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. We have seen miracles that no one has ever seen. We have watched Jesus do things that no one has ever performed. None of us would betray him. Too much of our hope, too much of our belief, too much of our lives are wrapped up in him. Surely not him. None of us would betray him. It couldn't be one of us. 
and at the same time, with almost equal force, flooding into my mind came this thought. It could be me. It could be me. For I have thought too many thoughts. I have said too many things. I have doubted too many times. And I found myself blurting out, even though I didn't want to say it, I found myself blurting out what every other of the disciples, every other one said almost at the same time. Is it I, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And all Jesus would say is that it was one of us. One of us there eating at this dirty, messy table, this grand and glorious celebration of the Passover. It could be me. Surely it's not me. But it could be me. As the meal had almost finished, and we were waiting for that portion of the end of the meal, the portion when we look toward the idea that Elijah will return and the Messiah, the age of the Messiah will come for us, Jesus said, I have something new that I want to do. I want to make a covenant with all of you, a covenant that is different than the one that we have celebrated this night. And he picked up a loaf of bread one that had not yet been used, and he took that and he broke it. And when he broke the loaf and he tore it in two, he said, this, this loaf represents my body, represents my body that is broken for you. And then he encouraged us to take and to eat, and that we should do so in remembrance of what would happen to him. And what would happen to his body? We weren't quite sure what he meant that night. But we took the bread and we ate it. In the same way, he took the cup, the cup that had been prepared for this very moment, this cup of Elijah, this cup that would celebrate the idea that Elijah would return. And he said, this cup represents my blood the blood of the Messiah, for I am the one who has come. I am the one. And this represents the sacrifice that I will make. Take and drink and remember the blood that I will shed, the sacrifice that I will make. So that night we ate and we drank. And we did so in deep confusion and pain. It was a celebration, but it was not. It was an anticipation, and yet it was fearful. It was joyous, but it was tinged with uncertainty. And so ever since that night, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ have been gathering like this in homes. We've been gathering together on starlit nights and on stormy evenings to eat and to drink and to remember and to celebrate. 
And I notice that what we've done is we've made this into something very orderly as we've gathered in these homes. Someone has taken the cup, someone has taken the bread, and we've, we've gone around and we've invited everybody to take and to eat and to drink. And it's become a very clean table, and it's become a very organized and very, well, a very worshipful event. But that night the table was dirty and the organization was little, and our hearts were filled with all kinds of things. And so I thought tonight that as we gather, as we have to take communion, that instead of somebody giving you communion or somebody offering communion to it or somebody coming to you and passing the elements around, that maybe this night we would go back to that night to a messy table and to a disorganized display. And so I invite you to simply come from your seats, wherever you are, and to take a piece of bread and to dip it and then to eat and to do so in remembrance of him. And like that night, after the communion was taken, we started to sing and we sang a hymn. And so tonight we'll sing as we take and eat and as we take and drink. And maybe at this confusing place where no order is being given tonight, God will bring order to our minds and hearts and lives as we eat and drink and do so in remembrance of him. Would you join me at the table? Would you come and take and eat and drink in Jesus' name? Bless us, O God, as we eat and drink, for you have given us this sacrifice, and it is your life, your death, and your resurrection that we celebrate this night. In Jesus' name, amen. Come eat, come drink, for the time is yours.